May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the Bible, there is the Gospel of St. John, and then towards the end of the New Testament, there are three little letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, um, or as the English would tend to note them, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Either way is fine. Um, in in the, the little letters that John writes, he writes to the church sort of spread abroad. It's a, it's a general letter. Sometimes we call them Catholic letters because they're universal in their appeal to um, the early church. And he writes the letters to help the church that's going through a time of distress. And the particular distress that they're going through is a period of false teaching. There are always false teachers that rise up in the church. Uh, men and women who try to use religion and the gospel for their own ends and for their own per, uh, profit. And this is what's happened in the community that formed early in, uh, in the Middle East and in um, the, the, uh, the far uh, western part of Europe. And John writes to sort of dispel these heresies and to kind of set the church back onto a right path. The one particular heresy that John deals with is called docetism. And what this was was that the belief that Jesus came only as a spirit, not as a, as a real tangible body. That he didn't have flesh and blood, as it were. But that he was just a spirit. He has seemed to be real, but wasn't real. Therefore, his crucifixion was only a seeming crucifixion, not a real one. His resurrection, a spiritual resurrection. And John writes to confront this heresy sort of head on. He wants, you, he wants us to know that, that Jesus lived as a very real human person. He went through all the sort of things that human persons go through. He got tired. He got hungry. He felt hot and cold. Felt isolated and alone. Felt happy and joyful at other times. He was, in all ways, human just like we are. John wants us to know that orthodox teaching matters. Orthodox means proper glorification. But we usually use it to describe proper teaching, that, that it matters what we believe. And, and John is very firm about that. It matters what Christians believe. Some things are true and some things are false. And to get to the point of what is true and what is false is important, especially when someone begins to teach false things as if they are true. There are also some things that are what are called adiaphora. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Matters of indifference. This might be true. This might be false. This doesn't really matter. There are a lot of things like this. Um, there, are, uh, there, there are a group of Christians who have, in the last 100 years, begin to believe something that goes like this. It's um, that at the end of time, or towards the end of time, Jesus will return in the air. He will catch Christians who are alive up in the air. He will go off into heaven, leaving those who are uh, non-Christian on the earth to sort of have a, a real good spell of evil, and then seven years later we'll return and um, we'll judge the good and the bad. Um, that's called a, a rapture theory. It, its technical term is sort of dispensational premillennial eschatology, um, if you wanted all that. But it, it, there are people who really believe this to be the case, but most Christians for most time have not. It's adiaphora. You can believe it, not believe it. In the end, it's all going to work out. We'll figure it out then. It's not a matter of essential doctrine. But there are matters of essential doctrine, like the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the bodily incarnation of Jesus. This is a, an essential matter of belief, and John wants to clarify this in his letter. It's important 
what Christians believe. But there's a problem with belief. It's abstract. It's, it's, um, it's academic. Yes, we can probably chart it on a blackboard or a whiteboard. You know, we can, we can probably write it down so that you could get a, a, a mental paradigm. But it's sort of like, like physics or like accounting. You know, your accountant can tell you how much money you have, or in my case, how much I don't. And, um, and you can look at it and you can see numbers on a page. But they don't, I mean, maybe they do with you. They rarely bring it to you so you can feel it in your hands. The tangibility. Oh, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? They don't, they don't do that. It's rather an abstract doctrine or a, a, an idea like physics. And, um, and, and so it is with Christian doctrine that sometimes it is a bit abstract. And because of this, it can become a seed of contention between Christians. Sometimes there is a nuance in belief that causes one group of Christians to kind of get angry or hostile towards another group. Let me give you an example. In the first year that I became a Christian, I was like 20 years old. And we went to Dayton, to downtown Dayton, to the Civic Center. There was some sort of um, Christian conference going on there. And I wanted to go, and a bunch of other friends of mine wanted to go. And so we went down there to, to go to this conference. And on the way out, there were people with picket signs outside of a Christian conference. And these people were not like the local atheist society. They were other Christians. And they had these picket signs, and they were saying that the person who was leading the conference was a heretic because he was teaching that you could be right with God without being baptized. Well, I thought it was a curious thing, so I went over to talk to them, as you would have done, right? And I began to enter a conversation with them, and, and so here's what it turns out. They would say, you, uh, you have to be baptized to go to heaven. Children cannot be baptized. So what you need to do is right when a child is old enough to uh, understand, that's the moment. You know, you, you have to be baptized then. And if you, you know, go through life and you, you grow up and you, you haven't believed yet, get baptized as an adult and spare yourself from going to hell. Well, I thought it was kind of an interesting thought. I kind of played with that a little bit. I thought baptism was important. I'd already been baptized myself. But I said to them, you know, what about the thief on the cross? Now, he wasn't baptized. And this man exploded at me. He was so angry. It's like he had been asked that question before, but had yet to come up with a real good answer to it, you know. And so he was really, really angry. And about that time, my friends came and drug me away because I had others. You know, I was ready to go. I um, thought it was kind of fun, but he was very angry. He was, he was not ready to deal with um, anything other than his own kind of construct. John says it's important what we believe. It really is important what we believe. But you know what's just as important as what we believe? How we live. Orthodoxy means nothing without orthopraxy. That's the, the right kind of living, the right doing. Praxis, what you do. Orthopraxy, and John deals as much with orthopraxy in his letters as he does with orthodoxy. And what is the source of right actions in this world? Well, if you heard the first letter of John, and even if you heard the Gospel of John, there's one word that just kept coming up over and over and over again. In my translation work, it was real easy because about every fourth word was the word agape, love. Beloved, let us love one another. <laughs> this thing is so sweet. It's, just, it's love, love, love. But love's a tough word for us in our world, isn't it? I mean, love means a lot of things to us. You know, a wife loves her husband. You know, uh, a boy loves his girlfriend. 
A girl loves her grandpa. I love chocolate ice cream. It shows. <laughs> we love, everybody loves something. We love, I love my dog. It's all the same word, right? It's all love, love, love. In ancient Greece, there was six different words for love. Eros, uh, erotic love. Um, philia, friendship or camaraderie. Ludus, playful love, the sort of love that, um, that young lovers share with one another. Pragma, what happens when you've been married for 30 or 40 years? You're pragmatic. You learn to work things out through compromise and tolerance. Philatia, which is self-love that's a healthy self-love. It's not like narcissism, which is self-obsession. Uh, it, it's a healthy self-love that allows you uh, confidence and, and a certain sense of, um, uh, of dignity and agape. Agape is, is unconditional love for other people. It is unconditional love for other people. And when John speaks of love, he always uses the word agape. I don't know that I could find a single reference in the New Testament or elsewhere where agape has as its object an inanimate object. People don't agape chocolate ice cream or even good wine or fine bourbon. They don't, they don't love those things. They love people. It's always people or God. It's always love directed towards others, other persons, God or, or people. And so just a few things real quickly about this orthopraxy. How do we live out this life of faith that, that has not only right belief but right actions? The first thing is, is that we love others because we ourselves have been loved. We should love other people because we ourselves have been loved. Listen to what John says. This is in, if you want to open the, the, um, the bulletin and look at the letter with me, you can. This is verse 10. It's about three verses in. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Just as a kind of aside, I've always thought that if I was John and I was given the task of writing the word of God and he said, the propitiation, I would probably have to ask him, how do you spell that? Um, anyway, but beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God loved us, we also ought to love one another. The message of the whole Bible is this, that God created humans as the apex of creation, put them in paradise, and with a, a moment's notice, we messed it up. We destroyed it. But that God didn't give up on us, that he came back, lived and died as one of us, so that he could reconcile us to himself. And even though we continue to mess up, God continues to reach out and forgive. That he continues to be reconciled to us. That we are all addicts in this world, addicted to sin and selfishness. But that God still loves us. And so John says, therefore, we ought, if you had a pencil and you underlined any word, we ought to love one another. This word ought appears seven times in the New Testament. Let me give you a few other references. Romans 15, St. Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation. We ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul in 2 Thessalonians writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Um, 
in Acts 17, St. Luke writes, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being like silver or gold. Ought. I don't know how often you use ought language in your own life. Duty. Obligation. Moral imperative. We are obliged. We are obliged to do what? To love one another. We have a duty to love one another. You, you maybe remember the story that, that Jesus tells? He tells the story of this fellow who owes a gazillion dollars. That's almost literally what he says. Uh, 10,000 talents, which was more money than existed in the world. There was a slave who owned 10,000 talents, and everybody started laughing. It would be like saying there was a clergyman who owed a gazillion dollars, and everybody would laugh. And he says, and this fellow goes to the person, the king that he owes the money to, and he begs, please, please, just give me more time. I don't know how much more time he would need to get a gazillion dollars. Please give me some more time. And the king says, you know what? You're forgiven. The entire debt is forgiven. Go. Go your way. And the man jumps up and, you know, he just like runs out of the room. He's so happy. And he's running down the stairs. And as he's running down the stairs, he sees another fellow, the guy who lives in his neighborhood, who owes him $10. And he says to this guy who owes him $10, you remember you owe me $10? And the fellow falls on his knees and says, please, just give me some more time. And he says, no, you pay me now or you're going to prison. And he throws him in jail. And we look at that story and we gasp. How is it possible that this man who was forgiven so much would not forgive so little? How is that possible? Because he does not realize how much he's been loved. This is us, right? Sisters and brothers, this is us. We have been forgiven a lot. And if you don't know that, you don't know a lot. You've been forgiven a lot. I've been forgiven even more. Therefore, there's a moral imperative, a duty, an obligation that we ought to love one another. And forgiveness is one of the major ways in which we show love in this world. Second, not only do we have a, an obligation to love, love is actually the evidence that we are disciples. It's the evidence that we are disciples. How does someone know that they're growing in the Lord? How does someone know that they have the Holy Spirit? Well, sometimes people say, well, their knowledge of the Bible increases. They, they study, they read. Other times people say, well, they, they speak in tongues or, or they prophesy or they do acts of you know, healing and work, you know, works of the Spirit. And those are all true and good things. But that's not what John says. He says, here's how we know, verse 16, we have come to know and to believe that the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in them. To stay, abide, to remain, it's, it's the same word. Um, like right now, you're not jumping up and down, you're remaining in your pew, right? To remain in God's love. This is what Jesus asked in, in the gospel, right? Abide in me and I'll abide in you. Remaining, abiding in love is the evidence of our discipleship. And I think the corollary is also true. Not abiding in love is not abiding in discipleship. If, if we abide in love and God abides in us in that, then not abiding in love is God not abiding in us and us not in Him. That when, we, when we love, we are demonstrating and we are the, the life of the Spirit in us. 
And when we are not, when we hold people in contempt, when we loathe them, when we despise them, we can feel poison in our veins. And we know it's true. Uh, there was this uh, famous monk, died in 1968, um, but still remains pretty famous. People still make pilgrimage to um, the uh, Our Lady of Gethsemane Abbey near Bardstown, Kentucky. And um, his name was Thomas Merton. Uh, he had um, entered the, the monastery in like 1941. And in 1958, he had this vision. He had traveled up to Louisville from, uh, from Bardstown, and he was right downtown. And there are people everywhere and cars going and whatever. And, and he has this, this vision. I want to read to you what he says. In Louisville, and it is Louisville too, not Louisville and not Louisville. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of a shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a human, a member of the race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize that we all are. And if only everyone could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way, listen to what he says, there is no way of telling people that they are walking around shining like the sun. We look around and we see people from a superficial way, you know. Phil, it's a nice jacket, you know. Mary, I like your glasses, you know. We, we see this superficial outward appearance. Or, you know, Joe, did you even comb your hair today? You know, we, we see this sort of outward-looking thing. And Merton says, standing on the corner of 4th and Walnut in Louisville, suddenly he saw people walking around shining like angels. Like those who bear the image of the invisible God. And he suddenly realized that he didn't look around these, at these people with superficial eyes and judgment, but he looked at them with love. A monk, isolated away most of his life, comes out and he sees people and he suddenly sees them differently. That they are loved. That they are beautiful. They're beautiful not in a sort of Philea uh, way or an eros sort of way, but in a, in a real divine way. He loves them with true agape, the way a grandparent looks at a grandbaby. You know, that kind of love. Love is not just an obligation of our discipleship. Love is the evidence of our discipleship. And the more that we love, the more that we know that God is living in us and we in Him. But lastly then, love is not... Uh, only those two things, it also, it must remain our commitment. We must be committed to love. I don't know how many weddings I've been to. I don't know how many I do, you know, three or four a year, every year for 20 years, sometimes more. Um, you know, maybe half a dozen in a year, some busy years. That's a lot of weddings. So many that I really don't have to look at the book very much anymore. 
Dearly beloved, we've gathered together in the presence of God and these witnesses joined together this man, this woman in holy matrimony. Go through all that liturgy. Man, look at the woman. Woman, look at the man. Take hands. Say these words. You promise to love, honor, and cherish this day forward. Death do you part. If so, say I do. I do. Same for you. <laughs> they do. The promise they make to love, to honor, and cherish. They make a promise. Why do you make a promise? Oh, you're already in love. That's why you're here. Because love is hard work. We can get lazy. We can forget that we need to love one another. We can set it aside to become unimportant. Now, I know that there are marriages that have failed, that people tried really hard. I would not add one minute to your pain. I promise you that. I understand that. And I don't believe God would as well. But it, 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 it does sometimes. It happens. I, I understand that. My point is just this, that love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. It is an, it's a verb. It's an action. And it comes from being uh, intentionally committed to it. It's not limited to a spouse. One need not have a spouse to love. That we can love every single person. And when we are baptized, it is just like. It is just like going to the altar for marriage. We are dedicating ourselves to the Lord to love Him and to love others. And we hear it at the beginning of most every service. That this is our Lord's command, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? That we love our neighbor how? As ourselves. That's right. That we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love them. If anyone says, John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, cannot, has, excuse me, his brother who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Easy for me to say. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We live in a broken world. It is. It's broken. And I'm going to give you a little news flash. And you're going to say, oh, this can't be true, is it? You're broken too. <laughs> I know that because I'm broken too. In fact, more than you probably. And the academics don't realize how their fast dealing with facts runs roughshod over the emotions of people who are feeling-centered. And... You know, um, younger people don't understand how people with old, how, uh, more experience can see the world differently. And people with more experience sometimes forget what it's like to be young in this world. And men don't understand women. And women don't understand women. <laughs> I thought that was funny. And, and women don't understand men. It's, it's a crazy world, isn't it? And what happens when we live in this kind of world? Well, we rub up against one another and we're abrasive and offensive. And our opinions are so important to us because they're right. Because after all, we hold them. They have to be right, right? That's what I think. It must be true. We hurt one another. We're inconsiderate of one another. We offend one another. And every opportunity is an opportunity to love one another. There's this fellow called William Shannon who wrote a, a biography of Thomas Merton. Um, and he talked about how Merton had changed from his entrance into the monastery until 58. And here's what he said. He says, one of the things going on in Thomas Merton was the matru- maturing realization, born of his contemplation, that it is not possible to leave the world in any real sense. 
He goes on to say, there is simply no place else to go. The experience challenged the concept of separate holy existence lived in a monastery. He experienced the glorious destiny that comes from simply being a human person and from being united with, not separated from, the rest of the human race. God is love. Holiness is love. And the only place that we can experience it is in this world. Here, in this broken world, where things are shattered and where we all live and have our being. It's here and nowhere else. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.